Have you ever dismissed something as insignificant only to find out later it was a really big deal? You thought that it didn't matter that much. It turns out it mattered a lot. That is the story of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. You may not have heard his name before. He was a, a chief resident of Vienna General Hospital in the 1840s. And he oversaw two different birth clinics, one that trained midwives and one that trained doctors. And Dr. Semmelweis noticed that the clinic that trained doctors, it was five times more likely that a, a birthing mother would die at that clinic than at the clinic with the midwives. And this puzzled him. What, what could account for this five-fold difference of the loss of life? And for a while, he couldn't find an answer. He, he studied and cataloged the similarities of their practices. But then he came to a theory based on one important difference. The midwives worked exclusively in their clinic, while the doctors in training worked at the birth clinic, but they also worked everywhere else in the hospital. And so it wasn't uncommon for these doctors to perform an autopsy, finish and head straight into the birth clinic and without washing their hands, help deliver a baby. Now for you and I, the problem is obvious, but this is the 1840s and germ theory hadn't been widely uh, accepted or understood the way that it is today. And so all Dr. Semmelweis had was a, was a theory and he wanted to try an experiment. He theorized that somehow something, something from these corpses was being, was being brought and transferred, but he didn't have language for this. He didn't have the, the scientific data to back it up. So with an experiment, he asked the doctors, when you come into the birth clinic to wash your hands with chlorinated lime water, and the doctors thought, this is, why are we doing this? And yet, it's no surprise to any of us. As soon as they ran that experiment, during that time, the, the, the survival rate increased and increased and in, increased. Lives were saved, and suddenly the two clinics were, were looking very similar. And to the staff and the doctors, it seemed like, well, why would such a small thing? It didn't, doesn't seem like it matters, and yet we know it matters a great deal. It was, in fact, a matter of life and death. Today, we begin a brand new series called Speak Life. I want to welcome everybody who is live at one of our three campuses at West Fort Worth and Keller and North Richland Hills, as well as everybody who's joining us online or later on podcast. As we go through these, these three weeks, we're going to talk about the power of our words and what it means that we can speak life. And maybe that, that comparison feels overblown. I mean, if, if you tell people that doctors washing their hands is a matter of life and death, everyone will agree. But if you tell people that the words that we use are also a matter of life and death, I think you're probably going to get some pushback. And yet, this is God's word to us. Proverbs 18, 21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. As far as God is concerned, the words that we speak have great power. The right word spoken at the right time can change someone's life for the good. And the wrong word spoken at the wrong time can crush someone's spirit. Words 
can start a fight. Words can start a war. And yet words can reconcile and heal relationships and even relationships between nations. The words we choose have great influence, not only on others, but even on the direction of our lives. And so, so to, to help make the case, I want to take you to a passage that we'll, we'll be in a couple times in this series. It's in James chapter 3. In James uh, chapter 3, James is the half-brother of Jesus. And the thing you need to know about James is that he does not mince his words. He comes at you strong and straight. He was this leader of the church in Jerusalem. And as he writes, he, he arrives at the topic of the tongue, of our speech. And here's what he says in James 3 verse 2. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So James, for his thesis, makes a connection between what we say and the direction of our lives, our bodies, that the little has great influence on the big. And here's, here's how I'd, I'd summarize that for those taking notes. The tongue has disproportionate power. That the, the words that we speak with the small muscle in our body actually have a disproportionate influence on the direction of our lives. There was an ancient saying, as goes the speech, so goes the life. So listen, as James has a couple of illustrations, some word pictures to make his point. The first might sound pretty familiar. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Some folks familiar with Ranchland are, are immediately nodding their heads because with a one pound, $30 bit, you can control a 1,200 pound, $100,000 thoroughbred. That bit has, listen close, disproportionate power. And James is saying that's true with our words. His next illustration, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. All it takes is a little bit of plastic for the, the fisherman's pontoon boat or a piece of metal that is disproportionately small compared to the huge yacht. And yet with that small rudder, the whole vessel is steered and controlled. That rudder has disproportionate power. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Last word picture. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. With these three word pictures, James is making the point that there is disproportionate power through our words to both direct our lives or destroy parts of our lives. And what he is teaching, many of us know and have lived into that very experience. Take the person who is incredibly talented and has a great resume, but when they are in the interview, man, they are some poorly chosen words away from not getting that job. And at the same time, there are a few well-chosen answers away from a life-changing job opportunity. But then once you have the job, the opposite is true. Everybody who works for a particular company right now, you know this is true, but I'm going to say it out loud. You are one sentence away from getting fired. 
I mean, you, you, you say the wrong offensive thing in a meeting that's recorded on Zoom, said in front of the wrong boss, and you, you're, you're in trouble. Student, you are in your classes. Some of you are at that place where you've got a class where it's, it's really loaded on one paper for much of the grade. You are one well-written collection of words away from making the grade. And yet in class, you are one offensive comment away from getting sent to detention. For the single person, you could be one DM away from a great relationship or one direct message away from getting caught up with somebody who is cray cray. <laughs> the, the politician, even somebody with great power, man, when they're running for office, they're one, one great debate, one great speech away from being at the top of the polls and at the same time, one bad quote away from being stuck in the news cycle and maybe having to drop out. Words can direct and destroy part of our lives. And in order to understand part of why the world works this way, I want to trace this power of life and death back to its origins. Genesis 1, as the Hebrew scriptures record the beginning of life itself, God is there. And in verse 3, read these bold words with me. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. This begins the creative pattern. God spoke life into existence. And then he calls, he names and identifies and then he blesses. This is how God continues to speak life throughout the days, as he commands and speaks, and then he names or calls, and then he blesses and sees that it's good. And a few verses later, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean that God made people in his image? Well, a huge part of what it means for us, and in fact, it is hard to overestimate the influence of that passage on how we today think about human rights because the Judeo-Christian ethic has always said every single person is conferred with the image of God, made in God's image, meaning that we believe no matter where someone is from, no matter what language they speak, no matter how much or how little money they have, no matter the color of their skin, their ethnicity, their nationality, every single person has dignity and value and worth that can never be taken away from them because they are made in God's image. That's what we believe. And at the same time, being made in God's image also, we believe, means God has given us some of that same ability and capacity to wield the power of life in our words, life in relationship and connection with others. Because when God made us, he made us for relationship and connection with him and with each other, and then to steward and bless creation. And so God has given us the ability to communicate 
like no other species. And so when we speak, we possess a God-given ability to shape and affect and change reality, to, to open up new possibilities. Okay, so, so just for fun, like this last week, there were, there were parents all over North Texas who, who realized some of the power of their words when they looked at grade school children and said two words, snow day. Oh, you know, for those grade school kids, those parents were speaking life. There's a new possibility now. But, but it's not just when we announce good news. It's, it's when we imitate our creator God by calling out and naming the dignity and value and worth, the God-given gifts that we see in others around us. It is when we speak blessing that we imitate God and speak life. It's when we bring truth and order into chaos, the chaos of someone's life by the words of encouragement or wisdom or hope that we might speak. God has given us this incredible capacity to have the power of life in our words. But two chapters later, we see the origins of a different power. Genesis 3 records, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Note that the first tactic of the enemy is to use words to undermine God's words of life. This is what he continues to do. From this point on in the story, the serpent, our, our, our spiritual enemy, distorts and deceives with words that have the power of death. I love the, the metaphor that author and pastor Erwin McManus uses. He talks about this as two frequencies that hum in the universe, the frequency of life, the frequency of death, as if there are two eternal spiritual conversations that have been going on ever since. God has been speaking life and Satan has been speaking death. And God continues throughout the story of the Bible to speak life over his people, to bring words of wisdom and hope. And he speaks to people. He speaks through people like Moses and the prophets. He even, he even speaks through his law, his word that is written down. And just as a side note for anybody interested in some fancy and incredible apologetics, look up later germ theory in Mosaic law. The thing that Dr. Simmelweis was trying to convince doctors of in the 1840s, God encoded in the Mosaic law when he talked about what was clean and unclean because God was speaking life to protect lives, to order lives, to bless lives. God's doing this throughout the Old Testament, and yet in the story of God's people, there are many words of death. The snake is still speaking. And so then, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John, in his biography of Jesus, goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What John has just done is he's gone back to the moment when God, through his spoken word, began creation. And John says, the word was more than a divine command. The word was a spoken extension of God's very being. A divine stream of creative consciousness lighting up the cosmos. And then John says, this word, this in Greek, logos, is actually has a personal nature because it, it is God. It was God. And nothing was made without this word. And then in verse 14, John writes that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This brilliant beginning, as, as John takes this word, this, this logos, that so many Greek philosophers were, were just obsessed with this whole concept, and he says, man, this, this concept that you think is about the reason for existence, well, actually, it is, it's the very thing that started all of creation. Nothing was made without this logos, this word, but this word is an extension of God. This word took on flesh. This word was the way God would most clearly speak life to us by coming and joining life with us. We believe that Jesus is God in human form, that he is the word made flesh. And in Jesus, God coming to earth, he would forever change the conversation happening, the competing conversations of life and death. Jesus came to speak life, but he also announced that in, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. So in conversational terms, Jesus came to shut the snake up so that the word of death would no longer be the final word, would no longer be the loudest word, would no longer be the strongest word. Jesus came revealing the glory of God, speaking from an overflow of grace and truth. And so when he spoke, man, people heard this authority in his words. He finishes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, and people say, wow, how does he speak these words with such authority? At his words, sicknesses were healed. At his words, sins were forgiven. At his words, demons were cast out. At his words, the dead were even raised. How is this possible? Because in him was life, the light of all mankind. So with his divine authority, Jesus spoke life and grace and truth and at one point, there's a bunch, of, a bunch of followers who listen to him, this huge crowd, a crowd even bigger than, than all of our campuses combined, and they leave because they're not interested in what he has to say. He's speaking at a frequency they don't want to hear. He turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to go to his 12 closest followers? And one of them responds, Lord, where would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. And then through his life, 
he would face what everybody thought had the final word, which was death. And he would die on a cross to not just speak forgiveness, although he did as he died, but to win forgiveness and to set us free. He went into the grave. They rolled a stone in front of it, and it was a give as if, again, death would have the final word in the conversation. But three days later, by the power of the same God who spoke life, the word made flesh was resurrected. And we are here not because someone died for us, but because someone died for us and came back to life. And Jesus, in this act, would forever speak a word of hope over all of creation and over each one of our lives because now death doesn't get the final word. Jesus promised after he resurrected that he would return, and that means Jesus gets the last word. That means that life gets the last word. And yet here and now, when we think about the power of life and death in the tongue and then think about the world that we live in, the conversations that we are a part of, the things that we write and read online and on our phones, I'm convicted that, that we have gotten used to the frequency that speaks out of selfishness and out of anger and out of spite, and out of sarcasm, out of cynicism, out of pain, out of greed, out of fear. And when we talk like that, when we type like that, we are amplifying and spreading words of death, words that originate with the enemy. That may, that may sound extreme to you, but the more I've studied the more I'm, I've become convinced there are no neutral words. When we speak, we always wield this power. And by the way, humans made in the image of God wield this power whether they believe in Jesus or not. We are always amplifying the frequency of life or death. We're always participating in one of those conversations with our words. I think Jesus saw it this way. I'll give, I'll give you an example from Matthew 16. Jesus asks the disciples, he says, what, what do other people say about me? And they, they give a couple answers. And then Jesus makes it personal and says, what do you say about me? And just pause for a second. For the person who is exploring faith, or maybe the person who has is, who is come to church today mainly because of a family member or because of somebody that you're dating or engaged to or, uh, or for some other reason, I want you to know Jesus will always push to make it personal. Our faith cannot be founded on just what other people say about him. Jesus will eventually turn to us and ask us to speak, what, who do you say that I am? And that's what he did with the disciples. And so Peter speaks up on behalf of the group, and he, he answers and says that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, he says you're the Messiah. And when Jesus responds, he says, blessed are you, Simon, because... Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. It's as if Jesus is saying, oh, Peter, you're, you're, on the, you're on the frequency of life. It's your mouth, but it's God's words. And only a few verses later, Jesus explains that be, being the Messiah means he's going to go to Jerusalem and he will die for the sins of the world. 
And on hearing this news, Peter takes the initiative once again to pull Jesus aside, but this time his words are to rebuke Jesus and try to tell Jesus how to be Jesus. Side note, don't tell Jesus how to try to be Jesus. (laughs) At which point Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. It's a bad day if Jesus calls you Satan. But the point for us today is that Jesus saw both the good truth that was spoken and the wrong advice that was spoken. All of it was connected to a larger spiritual conversation. That he hears these words and goes, oh, that, you're, you're saying it, but it's not just you. You're part of a larger conversation. There's a spiritual frequency humming all over creation. And we align with one of those two, life or death, when we speak. And in light of that, it's amazing that God's given us this power to steward. And yet it's humbling, maybe even a little scary to think every word I speak, I'm participating and amplifying one of those two. Life or death. Back in Vienna, Dr. Semmelweis, he's remembered among the medical community and and locally there for his life-saving efforts. But it's really sad when you research his life that you see that in large part, because germ theory just wasn't widely accepted, people rejected his ideas. He was criticized, he was met with skepticism and kind of put on some of the, the, the fringes, even attacked by other medical professionals just for trying to get doctors to wash their hands and instruments. And it's partly because he just couldn't give a satisfying answer. They were not satisfied with his reasons for why this was so important. And he couldn't quite articulate why it was so important. But he knew it was. And I'll be honest, I feel a little bit like that preaching this. I'll be the first to say, I do not fully understand why God made the world this way. Why he, he, he conferred and imbued our words with such immense power. I don't claim to understand the full mystery of that, but I believe it's true, and I see what God says, and I just believe this this is how the world works. But the other reasons that the doctors pushed back was, and historians say, you know, this was self-indicting. For the doctors to change their behavior, they were admitting they had participated in harm. And in a series like this, there there will be a sense of conviction. And the unhealthy version of that will be a guilt that remains on us or a shame. And that's not what God speaks over you. But it's hard to go there. It's hard to go there and admit and confess and repent and say, man, the way that I have spoken has participated not in life, but in the opposite. And yet, that's what we need to do. The other reason the doctors pushed back was because the solution seemed too simple. They're like, hold on, we, we've got all these degrees, we've got this incredible hospital, we are these professionals, and you're saying washing our hands is gonna, is gonna save lives? It just te- it seemed too simple for them. And I've even felt in my own spirit as I've been reading and wrestling and going, oh man, I, don't, I, I, I think maybe sometimes it's gonna come, come across too simple. Taylor, do we need a three-week series so I cuss less? I'm not saying we do. Maybe we do, but I'm not saying we do. 
And I hope you see it's about so much more than that. And so Dr. Semmelweis would say back to the doctors who had these questions and these, these sense of pushback, he would say, just try it and see what happens. And that's my word to us. Each week during this series, we're just going to have, uh, I'll finish each me- message with a simple practice as a, as a suggestion for the week of so, a way you can just try this. And this week, I want to invite you to speak life by speaking God's word. Let's start there. Speak life by speaking God's words. Let's not begin trying to think about the words we need to change. Let's begin by echoing and amplifying God's words. Isaiah 55, God is speaking through the prophet, and God says, the rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. And God says, it is the same with my word. I send it out and it That next word makes a big difference. It doesn't occasionally produce fruit. It doesn't sometimes produce fruit. It doesn't, in the best circumstances when I'm feeling like it, produce fruit. It, say that word with me at our campuses, always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. And so here are three ways, three very practical suggestions for how you could speak life by speaking God's word this week. The first is, is this, really simple. Read God's word out loud. Some of you already have a, a regular rhythm of being in the word. That's great. You kind of have a devotional, some kind of quiet time. So just unmute your quiet time. Just read God's word out loud, even if that's just a couple verses or a psalm each day. The second suggestion is to share God's word with others. So just look for opportunities in conversation to reference a scripture that's been top of mind for you or that comes to mind in in the conversation. This is something that I've, I've been trying to do leading up to this series as a way to practice this. And I'll be honest, what what I have felt is some 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 inner kind of my, 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 my pride or my social sensibility feels some cringe when I move to do this. And it's partly because I don't want to be the pastor who turns every conversation into a teachable moment. We're talking about groceries, and now I'm like, the Lord doth provideth. Hear this. <laughs> I'm just confessing. I don't want to be that guy. But you know what? When I push past that insecurity, which, by the way, is from the frequency of death, Anything trying to silence the word of God is from the frequency of death. And so when I push past that and I speak God's word, here's what I've noticed happen. Number one, it's it's hardly ever as awkward as I imagine it will be. And number two, more often than not, in the moment or at the end of the conversation, or maybe later I'll get this text that'll say, hey, would you send me that passage you quoted? And it's amazing to me how often somebody goes, hey, show me where that is. I want to look at that later. And speaking God's word activates this desire in others to be in God's word. And so here's here's the last uh, suggestion. There's lots of ways you could speak God's word, but here's, here's the third suggestion. To pray God's word. 
There's this great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says, we should pray out of the richness of God's word, not the poverty of our hearts. And maybe sometimes you feel that way. You're, you're uh, trying to pray and you feel like, I just have nothing to say right now. Or, I, I, I'm caught and I, I, I can't find the words. And it's beautiful that we can take what God has spoken and speak his word back to him and let that be our prayer. So one of the ways that, I'll, that you could do this is by yourself to take a passage, a psalm, and to pray it and to just, as you read it, to put yourself in the passage and to pray it to God. Or another way to do that, and this is something that I've been doing, is to look for opportunities where you can pray God's word over other people. And for me, conversationally, there's just been times where I ask somebody, is there, is there especially if, if they're a fellow believer, I'll just ask them, is there a passage that means a lot to you or that you've been thinking about a lot lately? And if they tell me that, this is really simple. I just turn to that passage and I pray it over them. And to, to make sure that that's not confusing, all I do, and let's, since last month we were in the 23rd Psalm, let me use that as an example. All I do is I, I personalize the language of that passage as a prayer. So if I'm praying for my friend, the 23rd Psalm, I might just simply pray, Lord, I ask that, that my sister in Christ would know that you are her shepherd and that she experiences in your presence that she lacks nothing. Just continue in that voice through the rest of the psalm to pray that you, Lord, would lead her beside quiet waters and refresh and restore her soul. That no matter what she walks through, that she would not be afraid because she knows your presence, that your rod and staff are there to comfort her. That she would experience what it means to sit at a table before you, even in the presence of the enemies around her. It's that simple. And I'll tell you what happens. When I do that, I pray more confidently because I'm not looking for the words. And I'm absolutely confident that what I'm praying is aligned with God's heart and God's will. And so I want to finish just by praying a passage over us as a church. It's from 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. I'll read it first and then I want to pray it over us passage says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So let me invite you to bow and I just love to pray that over us. God, I thank you that you are a generous God who has given good gifts to your children. And first I ask that you would awaken in us a realization of the gifts you've given us. For each person listening to my voice, you have given them gifts. And help each one of us to realize we've received that to serve others. God, would you make each one of us faithful stewards of your grace in other people's lives so that when we use our gifts, we're actually sharing part of your grace with someone else. 
I pray that for each one of us, that when we speak, Holy Spirit, help us to speak as those who speak your very words. When this week we have opportunity to serve, God, would you strengthen us in a supernatural way so that we might serve others? And would you do this, Lord, so that in all things you would be praised through Jesus Christ? To you, God, be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.